The dull thud of bullets smacking into water, followed by the panic cries of desperate people trying to get to Europe. That was the scene off the coast of Bodrum, Turkey, when the Greek Coast Guard confronted refugees and migrants. It's an extreme example of scenes that have been playing out daily on land and sea. I'm Willie Lowry, and on this week's edition of Beyond the Headlines, we look at the latest wave of refugees and migrants trying to get to Europe, and why Turkey is encouraging them. You would be forgiven if you thought this was 2015, five years after the European migrant crisis, when nearly two million people entered Europe, we appear to be on the precipice of another crisis. To understand why, we need to look at Syria. Nine years of war and bloodshed has left over six million people internally displaced, and at least another 5.5 million refugees in Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, and Turkey. Turkey is home to more than three and a half million Syrian refugees. The war in Syria is entering perhaps its final chapter. Bashar al-Assad's regime has secured much of the country, and now, with the help of Russia, has turned its attention to the northwestern province of Idlib. It is the last so-called rebel-held territory in the country. Assad's latest offensive, which began in December, displaced an additional nearly one million people, many of them for the second or third time. They're now huddled in refugee camps, both official and unofficial, unable to go home and unable to cross the nearby border into Turkey. Turkey has maintained a significant military presence in Idlib and has been battling the Syrian regime's Russian-backed forces. Fadi Hakura is an analyst at London-based Chatham House. He explains why Turkey is in Syria. Uh, Turkey has two primary objectives regarding its military involvement in northern Syria, uh, and in particular focused in the uh, province of Idlib on the, on the Turkish border. The first objective is to prevent a new wave of Syrian refugees crossing the border into Turkey. Uh, already there are 1.5 million uh, Syrians displaced uh, in Idlib province uh, due to conflicts in other parts of uh, Syria. And the second uh, objective is that Turkey, in particular its president Recep Tayyip Erdogan, still harbors uh, notions of regime change in Damascus and therefore does not want to lose the last foothold for anti-Assad rebels in, in Syria. On February 28th, 33 Turkish soldiers were killed in a Syrian government attack. Karim Shaheen is a journalist currently based in Canada. He's covered the Syrian war extensively. He says everything changed when Turkey suffered those casualties and that it demanded a heavy and effective response. What we saw was Turkey using um, its uh, drones and uh, along with, you know, long range artillery to sort of pummel uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad's forces, uh, you know, for a few days. And uh, the result was a massive loss of firepower for the Syrian regime. Uh, they lost a lot of uh, anti-aircraft systems. They lost a lot of um, soldiers. They lost a lot of armor. They lost a lot of, um, uh, you know, weaponry over the, you know, over a very short period of time. Turkey 
Russia, and the regime have currently agreed to a ceasefire. But Shaheen has little confidence in it lasting. And that's bad news for the almost one million people currently displaced inside Idlib. It's inevitable that the status quo won't hold. Um, and at the same time, the people who have fled their homes already, which are you know around a million civilians in Idlib, they don't feel safe enough to go back to their homes yet, uh, partially because the regime has taken over some of their towns and so they can't physically return to their homes um, and they don't want to live under the regime because it means potentially being arrested or, or killed or drafted into the military. And the, the rest of them, uh, you know, don't feel safe returning because, uh, you know, violence is inevitable to return. It's going to come back again and we're going to be faced with the same humanitarian catastrophe again, uh, even if it's a little bit ameliorated right now. In 2015, as refugees and migrants flocked into Europe, sentiments towards them began to change. As Europe grew increasingly concerned by the numbers, some communities turned hostile. A deal was struck between the EU and Turkey to prevent further migration into the continent in return for 3 billion euros in financial aid, which was eventually bumped to 6 billion. But on the 29th of February, Turkey reneged on the deal and opened its borders to Europe. Here's Fadi Hakura again. The European Union has reduced the entire Syrian conflict into the, uh, the prevention of uh, refugee flows into mainland Europe. And I think uh, that Europe underestimated the durability and longevity of the agreement that it struck with Turkey in 2016 to stem the flow of Syrian refugees and non-Syrian migrants into uh, mainland Europe, which uh, arguably contributed to the rise of anti-immigrant, populist, right-wing uh, parties across the continent. Uh, Europe has to raise its game and needs to engage with the uh, regional players uh, uh, that are involved in the Syrian conflict, such as Russia, uh, Iran, uh, the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad, and other players to find a solution to the Syrian uh, refugee uh, question. Otherwise, any agreement with Turkey will be temporary, transactional, and, uh, and limited. Turkey's motivations for opening the border are multifaceted. What Turkey is now looking for is probably new sources of finance, funding, and they want also, Turkey wants greater freedom to use that money. Because with the original aid of uh, 6 billion euro aid, that was administered directly by the EU, by the European Union. What Turkey wants is for the Turkish government, rather than the European Union, to administer that aid. Apart from the financial aid, Turkey is keen on getting military assistance in their fight against the regime and Russia. Also, President Erdogan was seeking a more intense European support for his political and military objectives in the northern Syrian province of Idlib. However, it seems that this tactic now is uh, backfiring. Europe is no longer, or at least less, uh, less willing to engage in further concessions than compared to what happened uh, to its position posture in 2015, 2016, when the first wave of Syrian refugees and non-Syrian migrants uh, took place. Rami Jara is a Syrian-British journalist. He worked in Syria during the early days of the war, publishing under the pseudonym Alexander Page. He was eventually found out and arrested for his work. Jara is now based in Europe. 
He says Turkey is using the situation in Idlib as collateral against the EU. The refugee crisis now uh, spilling over into Europe once again has nothing to do with those in Idlib, but this is more a bargaining chip process for the Turkish government to take advantage of, maybe to get people involved, maybe to get more money in uh, so it can, it can support itself, uh, but, but it's not really directly connected to what's going on in Idlib. When Turkey announced it was opening its borders to Europe, as many as 13,000 people tried to cross. While some were Syrians, many came from all over, from Pakistan, from Afghanistan, Somalia, Cameroon, Mali, and elsewhere. All escaping injustice, economic hardship, or insecurity. While many of those headed for Europe are fleeing, fighting back home, most are not classed as refugees. The EU, for example, deems Afghanistan a safe country, despite a two-decade-long war that's still going on. Ahmed is an Afghan who says life in Turkey offers little hope. He's currently in the border town, Edirne. I had to come here. In Turkey, there's no citizenship. That means no medication. When you go to the hospital, they ask for your citizenship, and we don't have it. That's why I have to go to Europe. But Europe has showed no willingness to let people like Ahmed in. On the island of Lesvos, where the bulk of refugees and migrants coming by boat land, relations between residents and those who live in Moria, the designated camp, have soured. Tony Rigupolis works for the Athens-based newspaper Documento. I think we should stress that in uh, 2015 and 16, when the migrant crisis started, uh, the biggest, uh, the majority of the people of Lesbos were um, in, in huge solidarity towards the refugees. But things have uh, switched they, because uh, in 2016, the Greek government, the then the Greek government, they reached an agreement between uh, European, the European Union and Turkey. And the migrants that arrived in Lesbos are not allowed to leave the island until their uh, asylum was uh, decided upon. Moria Camp is way beyond capacity. It was built to accommodate 3,000 people. It now has more than 19,000. Conditions are abysmal with no electricity and little running water. Karamula Karashi is a migrant from Afghanistan. He's been in Moria for three months. There is no place for the living. Here is like a hell. We doesn't have any toilet here, any shower here, any no water, no electric here. Residents say the refugees and migrants have started to spill over from the camp and are now encroaching on their farmland. But some of their attitudes towards the refugees is more problematic than that. We don't have a problem with uh, migrants. Uh, many Greeks, uh, and my father was my migrant. Um, we don't have problem with uh, Syrian uh, refugees. Okay, no problem. Uh, we support them, uh, but and we love them. But um, the problem is that um, we have many, many migrants by Pakistan, uh, by Afghanistan, uh, by North Africa, and many of them are jihad. That was Andreas Munjurias. Much of Greece's frustration stems from the European Union's refusal to take in more refugees. Greece has become a way station for them. Paul Nesse is a veteran humanitarian aid worker who's currently with the Norwegian Council for Refugees. 
for people like myself who worked with a crisis in former Yugoslavia 30 years ago, we saw a whole different attitude among European leaders to try to uh, contribute to solving a conflict, to contributing much more to where people were. 800,000 people came out of Kosovo in a week, and nobody said this is beyond that capacity. We, they said, how do we handle this in a humanitarian way? and in a political sharing way, in the sense that different countries take responsibilities. It's that kind of uh, responsibility we're now not seeing from European leaders. It is strengthening extreme forces in Europe, and it's not worthy of uh, a country that was, or a continent that was the origin of the Refugee Convention. Lost in all the politics are the people, the refugees who have fled war, the migrants who have escaped economic hardships, all hoping simply to live in safety, with the opportunity to provide for themselves and their families. This has been Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Willie Lowry. Subscribe by tapping the button on your favorite podcasting app. And if you liked it, don't forget to leave a review. We were produced this week by Aisha Khan, Arthur Edison, Erica Al-Kershi, Taylor Heyman, and James Haynes-Young. Special thanks to all our guests.